This podcast is brought to you by GIA, the Gemological Institute of America, protecting consumers and supporting the global gem and jewelry trade since 1931 through research, education, and laboratory services. Welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast, and now your host, Joshua Friedman. Welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast. I'm Joshua Friedman, Senior Analyst at Rappaport. On this episode, I was joined by Robert Wake Walker, a diamond industry consultant at WWW International Diamond Consultants in London, where he advises governments, mining companies, and financial institutions on many aspects of the trade. A fluent Russian speaker, Robert grew up in Moscow and has been familiar with the Russian diamond industry from a young age, as we will hear. He later developed a career as a corporate lawyer, but returned to Diamond in 2022 in the consultancy role. We spoke about Russian sanctions, consumer demand for diamonds, and the general state of the market. Enjoy the episode. So Robert, thank you very much for joining us from London. It's great to have you on this podcast. How are you today? Thank you, Joshua, and also to the wider team for inviting me on. Really delighted to be sharing some insights with you today. Great, me too. I wanted to start by asking a little bit about yourself. I know quite a bit about what you're working in at the moment, but if you could give our readers a bit of an introduction, please. Sure, absolutely. Um, my work and practice is centered primarily around providing consultancy and strategic services to mining companies, governments, and financial institutions who are connected with the diamond trade. Our organization is WWW International Diamond Consultants. In short, we are a broad-based, independent, rough and polished diamond valuation and consultancy company. Backed by a large group of diamond industry experts, we've been primarily delivering rough diamond valuation services to various Canadian government departments over the past 25 years, um, but also to a wide range of prospecting and actual diamond mining companies, as well as banking institutions. I guess from my personal standpoint, my own route into the diamond industry was probably uh, not a natural one. I, Before I joined the, the business, I was actually a lawyer, New York headquartered law firm in London for seven to eight years. My primary focus was on private equity and M&A transactions, infrastructure funds and structured credit outfits. So not a typical precursor to consultancy work in the diamond global diamond business, but but certainly a lot of skills that I draw on, which supports our clients today. So I was going to ask, how did you get into into diamonds? Well, actually, from a very young age, my very first memories in life were actually growing up in Moscow, where my father at the time was tasked with setting up De Beers's first diamond office in Moscow. Obviously, just after the fall of the Soviet Union was a time where Western companies were looking to cement relationships with uh, a no longer communist, really fledgling economy at the time. So we were, as a family, living out there for four years. And ever since then, I've, despite being young, had a very close connection with Russian industry and Russian business, and also the language and culture. I studied Russian at university and then have lived since out in Moscow for long periods of time, both studying and working in different businesses. So I hold some close connections and interest with Russian industry. And as we will, I'm sure, come to discuss, it's a very salient topic in our diamond trade at the moment. It is, it is. Before everything that's going on now, did you have any connections? Did you follow what was going on in the Russian diamond industry and the development of our rose or the development of Russia's mining industry? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's always been well known that Russia is the biggest diamond producer in terms of carrot volume. It's the biggest producing country in terms of rough diamonds in the world. So it has always held a very prominent place in terms of the upstream and midstream markets. And in particular, its diamonds have been extremely well marketed across the globe and, you know, in particular into jewelry companies. So we've been very aware and we've worked closely going back into the early 2010s with bringing online Russia's only recent mine, which was the Grib mine deposit in the Arhangelsk region. So, you know, as an organization, our team are very familiar with the diamond product that comes out of Russia. We were supporting the preliminary shareholders and mine management team on bringing the GRIB diamond mine into production, which is the only major and recent diamond deposit found in Russia, but also is one of the non-state-owned diamond mines in existence in Russia. Fast forward 10 years or so, clearly our organization's knowledge of the diamond industry in Russia, given recent geopolitical events, the political decision made to restrict not only the circulation of Russian diamonds across the jewelry trade, but also restrict revenues back into the Russian state has been extremely important. So a lot of our advice at the moment with various clients is really guiding them through the various legal restrictions that are very live in terms of their implementation, but also how they potentially could affect both supply into the trade in the futures. Before we get on to the nitty gritty of the sanctions, I had the impression that even before the Russian war in Ukraine began, the relationships between the West and Russia were already getting a little bit frosty. And I know that, let's say before the war, Arosa was trying to promote Russian diamonds in the US, etc. But still, there was a sense that the US and Russia weren't quite on good enough terms for that to be successful, even at that time. Did you also get that impression, even before the war? So thinking about the sort of early 2000s and 2010s, yes, is the answer. There certainly was a concerted push by the Russian state to try and piggyback off quite a lot of branding exercises that Ralph Diamond producers had sought to implement. And that was clearly with De Beers' Forevermark and other branding opportunities that Diamond Miners sought to really build a connection between mined diamonds and the consumer, Russia sought to do the same. And really, that connection was always a difficult one for them to, given the sort of sales processes, which had been in place since 1959, sort of having that close bond as a sort of large state-owned organization with the, and, and marrying up their product with the sort of concerns and wishes of a European or a US consumer was always a challenging exercise, but they certainly did build relationships with a number of key diamond traders and, you know, being a member of the Arosa Alliance and a sort of contract partner of theirs was always a positive thing in the trade, you know, given the supply implications. But clearly, we'll come on to, as we approached February 2022, all of those efforts sort of fell by the wayside as the political and geopolitical circumstances altered very drastically. Right. So in February 2022, the war began and there were immediate reactions from the West. You know, US sanctions, UK sanctions took a bit longer in Europe, but it became clear quite quickly that the US sanctions, at least on a legal technical level, weren't really sufficient to keep Russian diamonds out because of this loophole of substantial transformation. Was your impression that this was an oversight or was it an intentional Was there something intentional there? I wouldn't say it was an oversight. And I think it's worth just setting a bit of the context, as you alluded to, 
there, Joshua. I think we should remember that the United States imposed sanctions on Alrosa, the state-owned mining company in Russia that accounts for diamond production from all but one of Russia's diamond mines. And Alrosa as an entity is economically and majority controlled by the Russian federal state and also the state of Yakutia in the northeast of the country. So once clearly that link had been identified politically, the revenues from Russian diamond sales are essentially going straight back into the Russian state. You know, the United States did move very quickly. And in April 22, did set out a series of sanctions. But these were sanctions, product sanctions really written into law and on paper. There was no physical way in which diamond imports could be checked. So what we've seen over the last 18 months, really, has been a very concerted effort by the G7 and group of seven countries backed by a proposition by the European Union to spearhead and kind of coalesce around a single unified ban that can really restrict revenues. And this ban has been marketed as one which um, looks to use provenance and traceability as the sort of key manner in which diamond exports from Russia can be stopped. We've seen actually a number of product bans already in place. And I think it's worth bringing diamonds a little bit into context as an export from Russia, given Russia also has major natural resource and hydrocarbon exports in the name of crude oil, in gas, in base metals, and also in gold. You know, these are all products which far, far outweigh in dollar terms the amount of revenue that the Russian state brings in from diamond sales. So in principle, you know, sanctions have appeared to restrict the exports by Russia. And there's tangible evidence that shows that oil and gas exports from Russia have decreased. I mean, but they haven't been wiped out entirely. That's really the position where we find ourselves in. I think a Russian diamond ban, in summary, has had to follow the strategically more important natural resource exports. But it seems that the G7 is extremely focused with the buy-in from the European Union around a, a single unified process. Now, we spoke a few weeks ago and you explained to me how the EU sanctions were going to work. And uh, I'm very grateful to that. But it seems like other than the EU, which has put out a fairly detailed document about how sanctions are going to work, there does seem to be a bit of lack of clarity on what's going to happen, particularly in the US, how customs are going to manage this, what the methods are going to be for identifying the origin of a stone. What do you know about this? I think at the time of recording, it's the the 23rd of January today. The actual detail that surrounds how the product sanction will be actually enforced is very limited. And that's problematic for a number of reasons. I'm sure we'll touch on those. But taking the US as a primary example, I think towards the end of December, various nation states that are members of the Group of Seven and also the European Union began to implement fairly broad brush restrictions that had to begin on the 1st of January of this year, and they have already been brought into force. We should remember that Russian diamonds as a product are banned from being imported into the European Union, and they are also banned from being imported into America and the other members of the G7. But as you say, there is not a single piece of technology at the relevant customs borders that can identify and say, well, this is a Russian diamond and that's not, because they are looking to implement a single traceability 
piece of technology to really ascertain where diamonds are coming from. And that really is the beginning of the uncertainty that the industry currently faces. So just taking the European Union ban for a second, what they are saying is that from the 1st of March of this year, so in around five weeks' time, there will be a restriction on Russian diamonds, which are processed in third-party countries. So if you export your diamonds from, say, Russia into India or Israel, and you have them manufactured, then there is a technical ban on importing those diamonds if they weigh one carat or more. And that process will then be sort of implemented as a sort of trial for six months. And then on the 1st of September of this year, that ban will continue, but the weight threshold will be reduced down to 0.5 carats and up. So what the European Union have stated, and they are the political union that provided the most information, albeit limited, is that they will look to make use of a single blockchain technology. The details are thin on the ground, but we understand it will be a preliminary digital twin will be created of a rough diamond when it's imported, for example, into Antwerp. The diamonds will pass through the Antwerp diamond office from whichever country they've been exported from. And then when that diamond is then traded in Antwerp or taken out for manufacturing in another country, then the European Union will say, right, when that diamond gets back into the G7 economies, there will be that same technology available to check the resultant polished stone of one carat or more or half a carat or more that will allow us to say, yeah, yes, that diamond came from Sierra Leone or that diamond originated in South Africa because of the the work that they would have done on the verification. I should say that's really what they're trying to implement. But that's the EU, right? And that's, we haven't seen... Am I right that we haven't seen anything of that detail from the US yet? No, we haven't seen anything from the US, but we should remember that the US is a net importer of polished and it imports Mm. very little, if any, rough diamonds. As there's, uh, again, as far as I'm aware, very little, if any, manufacturing going on in the United States. So the United States will, again, the details are very unclear as to how this will actually work in practice. But from what we understand is that if a rough diamond has been verified in, say, Antwerp, then the resultant polished should and could be able to be checked at the Customs Board of the United States. But we have absolutely no clarity at all onto what the United States plan to do and certainly how they plan to mitigate against some of the risks that we see in this process. Right. And one of the questions that everyone has in industry is what if you you don't want to send your rough to Antwerp, you want to ship it to, from, let's say, Botswana to India and polish it in India and then send it straight to the US. So do you expect that there will be some sort of requirement to get it verified first or to get it certified first in Antwerp before it goes to the US? That's not what we understand based on the information we've seen to date. There is no single legal requirement that requires any diamond producer to export to Antwerp ahead of another trading center. Diamond countries are free to export as they see fit. You're absolutely right. And, you know, 70% of the world's diamond jewelry is consumed in G7 and European Union linked economies. And 30% obviously sits outside in primarily India and China, but also in the Middle East and other economies. But as the current situation stands, yes, there is nothing preventing if you, in April, sent a diamond from anywhere in the world for manufacturing in India or in Israel, and the resultant polished was under one carat, then there would be no requirement to have any form of verification carried out, whether it's the European Union customs border, or as we understand it, the US customs border, because of the weight thresholds. Um, But it's, 
guess I'm thinking about stones that are above the weight threshold. Do we have any clarity on how that's going to work for the US? Uh, no, we don't. There is no, they have not made available any information. We do not know if the US system is being done in Antwerp and then being shipped on. So as you can see, it's a very unclear message at the moment. As I say, only five weeks out from implementation. This podcast is brought to you by GIA. Consumer trust is vital to the global gem and jewelry industry from mine to market. Through research, education, instrument development, and independent gem grading and identification, GIA is dedicated to protecting consumers, ensuring their trust in gems and jewelry, and helping the industry thrive. Visit GIA.edu for more information. But maybe we can extrapolate from what's in the EU proposal to what might be implemented in the US, or is that... If the technology is portable, there could be a similar mechanism at the US customs border. But again, I mean, given that there are multiple points of entry into the US markets, given the size of the geography, we do foresee slowdowns and bottlenecks as a result, as a topic we'll come on to shortly. But we do, whenever you're five weeks out from a major change in the supply chain of any business, and there are plenty of examples to, to show for this, um, without clarification, then obviously there is nervousness as to how trade will flow in the coming months. And so, yeah, we, we wait for the details and I hope that's forthcoming. Right and in terms of the risks the obvious thing that comes to mind that has been discussed at length by many parties including by Rappaport actually is the potential impact on artisanal miners the informal mining sector which don't have access to the infrastructures that De Beers Goods has. Would you say that's the number one risk to the general well-being of the industry? Sure I think the general well-being of the industry really hinges on an understanding by the people who are politically implementing these sanctions in understanding the sort of multi-continent, multinational state of the global diamond trade from a multitude of different producing countries through to the various manufacturing centers and the amount of jobs that rely on those types of work. And then ultimately the amount of different consumers all over the globe that essentially buy diamond products. So one of the key things that we're trying to understand in this sanctions package is if you have uh, a piece of technology set up in Antwerp to monitor the rough diamonds that are coming in and using Antwerp as a hub, could that same technology not be made available in, for example, the Sierra Leone government offices or the South African government offices or any diamond producing country could, I would have to see exactly what the technology looks like and the costing implications, but it feels to me that you achieve two things there. You bring the technology and verification closer to the source of the diamonds and essentially you're narrowing the supply chain a bit to really from when the diamond comes out the ground and before those diamonds get exported, they can be sent to a central office where the technology as signed off by the G7, could be used. And therefore, you don't have that risk of then a longer gap before the diamonds get sent up to Antwerp, geographically much further away, a delay in a procedure, and really funneling all of the world's diamond production from various countries into one. You know, we think that for keeping business and trade flowing, which is you know, really you know, our goal as much as anyone, we really want to see a continuation and a really healthy trade over the coming years, given the geopolitical climate. That is one of the solutions that we think could help support the verification process and make the pipeline more fluid. Right. So if I was a rough dealer in or a manufacturer in India, and I, my business, my livelihood is from buying secondhand rough from, let's say, De Beers site holders, and then manufacturing mm. and selling it. This now makes my life harder, assuming that it's over the, the size threshold. If I want to send that to the seller to the US or another member of the G7, I'm going to have to not just buy the rough and manufacture it, but 
kind of somehow tap into this chain of technologies this chain of information. That is our understanding. There has been talk around how, for example, all of De Beers' sales will, you know, what will happen to them from Botswana. I mean, it, you know, realistically, I don't see a scenario where every single piece of rough gets shipped up to Antwerp and then back again and then exported. You know, it feels like there are plenty of outstanding points with regard to De Beers' actual diamond exports, but given the way they have to travel around the continent of Africa and also Canada before they're sold to clients. But yes, in theory, I mean, you would need to make sure that checks are being carried out on the underlying rough to ensure that if you're buying a large stone that when manufactured, produce a stone of either half a carat or a carat or above, you then have a pathway to sell that into a G7 market. Because as the rules state currently, to bring a diamond product of those weight thresholds into the G7 markets, you will need to go through the relevant customs checks. This brings us to another potential shortcoming of the sanctions, which is actually most Russian diamonds, once they're in the polished, maybe even when they're in the rough, are under half a carat. So the question of how this is even going to be effective if there could be a continued flow of Russian melee into the US or into the G7. That's correct, Joshua. And we don't feel our role here is to start picking holes in political decisions. And, and right. certainly the officials that have taken a long time in coming up with these proposals, you know, are, are representing their electorate. So, you know, I, I want to be careful about you know, explain the sanctions. But um, no, I mean, yeah, from our objective experience and independent analyses of Russian diamond production over, you know, going over really 30 years, we can, with a degree of accuracy, state that only 10% of Russian rough diamonds by weight and around 30% by value produce polished diamonds or will result in polished diamonds of one carat or above. And then a relatively incremental percentage, more than that, that would result in polish of 0.5 carats or above. So really our conclusion, as you correctly pointed out here, is you know, if more than 50% of Russia's annual rough production is not caught by the restrictions, then what impacts are we really looking at here? Because for a country that on average brings in around $3.8 to $5 billion of, of revenue from Russian rough diamond exports, you know, if less than half of that is actually restricted from the G7 economies, then an argument could be made you know, how much restriction is actually going on, which is why we focus quite carefully on the situation with African artisanal miners on all diamond producing countries. I include the African continent, Canada and Brazil in really hoping that the way this restriction develops doesn't affect diamond exports from non-Russian countries because they do so much to bring in tax revenue, to support local areas, to create a lot of jobs. And that's something that we will always try and defend and look to protect. Right. Do you have clients that are expressing concern about the impact of these plans? We do. And they keep thinking that they're missing something or there's a sort of very helpful explanatory piece that, that will guide them into explaining exactly how they can actually sell that rough. You know, will they have to make sudden changes in clients or will they have to move operations? You know, some potentially knock on operational effects that they're thinking about. But unfortunately, without the exact clarity and knowledge as to how this will happen, they're slightly in the lurch. But I'm sure the advice and the explanatory guidance will be forthcoming, as I understand it is. G7 meetings, a sort of working group of G7 members is meeting and has met with African diamond producers and various trade bodies and bosses to listen to the concerns of the trade and to hear some of the arguments I think I've put forward as well, to understand perhaps in more detail the, the intricacies of diamond trading and production. But I should also add, by the way, I mean, 
we talk about the Russian diamond sanctions framework as it's politically implemented, but you know, also a lot of our clients in the downstream sector have really been self-implementing bans with their clients for many months now. You know, a lot of the big jewelry brands in particular since the outbreak of conflict in 2020-22, they have some very robust safeguards with decade-long wholesalers and diamantaires who've been supplying them with diamonds to ensure that no Russian diamonds of any size or any kind reach their supply chain. We feel that the downstream sector has also played a very important role in helping eliminate this. Right. Um, obviously, we can't predict the future, but one thing that has been on my mind is what what would happen if the situation in the Ukraine gets quieter? In a few years' time, there isn't a war between Russia and Ukraine going on. Do you think everything would go back to normal or is this going to leave a permanent impact on the market? Very good question. I think there certainly won't be a quick return to normal. I think we can only really look at historical guidance where sanctions, perhaps led by the United States, have been implemented against aggressor countries or labelled aggressor countries, you know, how they've dealt with them. Typically, sanctions are quite slow to unwind. I don't want to foresee anything and I know that there will be a lot of pressure by a lot of countries who are major stakeholders in the international diamond trade to, to, to discuss this issue were, were that scenario to happen. But as we've seen typically with oil-based sanctions, maybe for example from Iraq following the 2003 war, those sanctions, you know, some get unwound, some remain in place. It's very much a moving thing. But no, typically they're not quick to get rid of them as soon as a conflict finishes or ceases because they look to use them as a preventative measures in the future. You know, people feel that they can't get away with it another time. Right. Looking more broadly at the diamond market, obviously last year was one of the most challenging years for the industry for many years. What would you say was behind that? Yeah, really what happened in 2023 was the context in which consumer businesses of all different guises sort of suffered more than predicted. Looking at the diamond industry itself, you know, the first three months of any calendar year are always typically the strongest rough buying months. Wholesalers are looking to restock after the busy Thanksgiving and Christmas selling periods. People are looking to carry favor with tender houses and their contract suppliers. So, you know, it's always been an aggressive month in terms of buying. And if you look at volumes historically, the first three to four months usually see the highest sales. What happened in 2023 was that that sort of typical trading pattern was also influenced by this feeling that Chinese demand would return pretty hot based on the fact that Xi Jinping had reopened the economy after two to three years of closure. And people were really looking at the Hong Kong March show last year as a period when you know diamond demand would take off again. But unfortunately, that never materialized. So what we saw was quite a lot of speculation on the rough and manufacturing side. When the demand didn't materialize, there was a stockpiling of inventory and dealers were really pressured for the next sort of eight, nine months of the year into managing that inventory quite carefully and trying not to write off too many losses, you know, as prices went down and WWW rough diamond index overall during the year went down a shade over 20% and our overall polished index went down around 17%. So yeah, certainly a difficult year. But what I would say about the context of last year, which a lot of people and a lot of news articles I've read sometimes point towards lab-grown diamonds being the sort of cause of the fall in natural polished prices. But actually, in our practice, we believe that it was a dual scenario of high inflation and monetary policy tightening. So the increase in interest rates really caused a perfect storm 
which impacted consumer spending. And that impact was seen across all forms of discretionary consumer businesses. So outside of energy and food, if you look at most European clothing brands where, you know, say garments don't cost more than 10 or $20, you know, they were booking two, three hundred million dollar losses at the end of year earnings. So diamonds weren't just the only industry where prices and fundamentals of the trade were affected. We actually saw this across a multitude of consumer businesses, which, yeah, I guess really feeds into the fact that interest rates and inflation were, you know, a perfect storm that impacted the consumer. And as a byproduct of that, we saw the rise of lab-grown diamonds. Right. I think that's a good analysis because firstly, lab-grown was at least partly byproduct of the weak US economy, although the timing was convenient because... 2023 was also the year when lab growing became more available. And we've just seen a, you know, a couple of years of technology improving, which brought the sector to that situation. But also, I don't believe people are talking enough about the impact of the weak Chinese economy on the diamond industry. And almost invariably, when I ask particularly diamond manufacturers about why the market's weak, China is usually the explanation. And it doesn't seem like that's actually going to be improving anytime soon. Although we no. do have Chinese New Year coming up and another Hong Kong show, there's some... Um, People are telling me that even when there's been some sort of overall economic improvements in China, people are still not buying natural diamonds. And I don't, I don't know when that's going to end. And really, I mean, it's uh, just to add to that, I mean, analysing both 2019 and 2023 actually shed some really interesting results. I mean, two years that bookended the coronavirus pandemic, you know, the sort of three years that sit in the middle were affected in, and distorted in very different ways. It's sort of really outside of general economic control. But one of our key statistics, again, I mean, I would add to the Chinese economy, the US consumer, which, you know, as we know, holds around, makes up for around 45 to 50% of global diamond retail purchases. You know, one of the most interesting statistics that we always discuss with clients is going through the Bureau of Economic Analysis. So they are a sort of US state-run statistical company that has shown that the personal savings rate of the US consumer currently sits at around 4% or just under 4%. And that statistic is half of what it was in 2019. So the personal savings rate percentage is, is essentially what's left for the consumer after they pay their taxes and have to basically pay their key bills and everything they need to live. And if you halved that number for anyone globally, I'd say even including sort of high net worth individuals as well, you know, it would be a noticeable impact. So really what we're looking at really closely is if that number begins to increase and pressures on people's living begins to ease, then we hope that the discretionary consumer economy, which obviously includes diamond business, will improve. But we believe that that will be a gradual improvement, not a quick fix, as we see central banks probably taking a pretty careful and cautious approach to bringing down interest rates. Right. So we, we reported that the beers had reduced rough prices by about 10 to 15 percent at its site in January. And that's Numbers are a bit, bit higher than that and a, bit, and a bit lower than that in certain categories. Do you think that's going to impact the market? Difficult to say because I saw this in one of your pieces, Joshua, that um, some site holders or clients of De Beers have said that the cuts didn't nearly go far enough. I think you know it's important to look historically at how De Beers have controlled their pricing. You know They're used to, for many decades, actually, in a weak market, they would just reduce the amount of sales and accumulate stock rather than reducing prices. But of course, they could do that as an organization primarily because they controlled 75, 80% of global rough diamond production. That figure is now half that or maybe a bit more. So they don't have that same flexibility of selling the accumulated stock back into the trade when the market 
booms or the market gets stronger. So the prices that we saw were, were probably, in our view, a little bit behind actual rough time and trading conditions. I mean, broadly speaking, our independent price book has seen a 5 to 10% increase from the beginning of December up until now of all rough. So we feel that this is either a sort of late decision based on market conditions. But as we understand it, some of these cuts probably didn't go far enough. I mean, when it happened, the concern was mm. that at the very least, it would impact sentiment in the Polish market, even if it wouldn't impact prices because of what we've said, that the reductions weren't deep enough to actually match Polish prices. Do you think there has been any impact on sentiment? Maybe even in the other direction because manufacturers can make more profit now. Sure. I mean, we really at the beginning of a cycle after an eight, nine month downturn. So after one site, let's say those goods are now being exported to manufacturers in India. I think you know by the time that that polished is available to the market, we're looking at a sort of eight week lead time at a minimum. So in terms of polished prices, we're seeing at the moment a little bit more volatility in the rough diamond prices as opposed to polished, which has had a, a steadier increase in the curve as the year has begun. And I think that's really a function of you know, wholesalers and also jewellery companies just taking a bit of caution based on what happened 12 months ago, you know, trying to sort of maintain a steady flow of orders, just seeing how demand materialises given the economic conditions. So I think on the Polish side, we're not seeing a drastic impact either positively or negatively. I think we're seeing a more considered approach to their pricing, the considered more cautious approach to their orders. But in the rough side, as we've discussed, it, it does feel a little bit more volatile. And you know the, the, the peaks and troughs, if we just take the last three or four months, have been much larger than the, the changes in, in Polish prices. All right. What's your view on the long-term supply outlook? I mean, there's continued discussion about how there have been very few new economically viable mines coming on stream. Yeah. Other than some stuff in Angola, there's not really much plans for anything else to come on stream. Where, where do you see this going over the next few years and maybe even decades? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you say, Joshua, there's very little prospecting going on at the moment. Rough diamond production, we predict, will fall year on year over the next decade. We see a small peak next year in 2025. You know, and our figures at the moment see that in around 10 years' time, rough diamond production will dip just below 100 million carats in around 2032, 2033. You know, and, and these figures actually, I should add, as you mentioned, do include the gradual ramping up of sales from the new Luele concession in Angola. But even, as you say, if a sizable mine was discovered tomorrow, we'd be looking at six to 10 years to bring that mine into production. And even then, with you know the cost of energy and you know another increase, inflationary pressures, the appetite for prospection or prospectors in the diamond industry is much reduced from what it was in the mid and late 2000s when there across Canada and Africa, there was a huge amount of investment across the capital markets into potential diamond projects. Right. And do you think the sanctions on Russia could have a long-term impact on global supply? Or could we see a situation where basically Russian supply ends up in China and India? African supply ends up in the US. Yeah, I mean, we'll need a few months, I think, to consider all the data and see how, if any, Russian sales continue and, you know, and how the product sanctions really work in practice. I mean, we have seen, for example, that even oil and gas sanctions, products that are extremely difficult to move around the world, have been subject to some circumnavigation, oil and gas slipping through, you know, oil and gas are logistically a really hard product to move around the world. It's very obvious when you're doing it through pipelines and slow oil tankers. So Russian diamonds, I mean, it'd be fascinating to see how much actually gets into the trade. How will countries be manufacturing in India or even 
could, for example, Russian diamond production be sold through, mixed with other countries and, and sent out that way? There are lots of unknowns at this stage. But in terms of the supply element, you know, we're not pricing in any strong material increases in both rough and polished. I think we see modest increases for the remainder of this decade, broadly in line with economic growth globally. Perhaps then, as I've just touched on the supply element, with a steepening increase in prices from 2030, as you know, we really, I think, will start to feel the natural diamond supply reduce based on the expiration of a number of major diamond producing mines. But um, you know, it's how, what happens to Russian sales is a big unknown because whether they start stockpiling in the Gokhran, which is part of the Ministry of Finance, they could build up maybe dangerously high quantities of rough, which, you know, when there's that illusion of rough overhanging the market, then that can also have a negative influence on prices as well. So we'll need to see not just the empirical data, but just what the feeling is in the market as to how much supply is not only coming out of countries, but how quickly supply can move through the supply chain based on these new verification posts that are being set up, as we understand it, in Antwerp and potentially beyond. Well, on that note, Robert, thank you very much for your insight. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. I particularly enjoyed hearing about your knowledge of Russia and diamonds and how those two things connect. And it's quite a rarity to be able to have someone with the combined competence on our podcast. So I'm very grateful to you, Robert. And um, it's been nice to have this conversation. Joshua, thank you very much. Um, Really great to to be invited on. And uh, thanks again for your time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rappaport Diamond Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to get future episodes. For more discussion, news and analysis about the diamond industry, you can visit Rappaport.com, follow Rappaport Group on Instagram, and follow Rappaport on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We also invite you to watch our weekly market comment videos on our YouTube channel. This podcast is brought to you by GIA, the Gemological Institute of America, protecting consumers and supporting the global gem and jewelry trade since 1931 through research, education and laboratory services.